Would you open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 13? I'm going to do something uh, this morning that I, I don't do often because, I mean, candidly, I'm just not a very good reader. Like, if Mr. Rogers was here, we would do this more often, but it's, it's me. But I'm going to read the entire chapter of Mark 13. And I'm doing this on purpose because I want you to see Jesus, this is the one answer to a question. Like this is the longest answer that Jesus gives to any question that's asked to him. And keeping in mind, this is actually uh, a shortened version of it because in Matthew 24, 25, Matthew gives a a more in-depth version and some people say, oh, that means the Bible contradicts itself. No, 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 no. When you go to the the five o'clock or the six o'clock news, you get channel six, you get channel four or channel two, whatever. They might all be reporting on the same story but this reporter is going to bring this element out of it, and this reporter is going to bring that element out of it. They're all telling the same big picture story, just different elements come out with it. So the three synoptic gospels, they do not contradict. They're just like three different reporters telling three different uh, emphasis on, on the same event, if that makes sense. So Mark 13, verse 1. <laughs> I've you're welcome. I put that up on the screen. It's going to do us no good at all, isn't it? Because it's too small. <laughs> but you know what? Look, if you want a New Year's resolution, here's your New Year's resolution. Bring your Bibles Amen. to church. And you're like, Darren, I left it at home. Pull out your phone. And do, make your New Year's resolution to be not pretend like you're reading the Bible while you're checking Facebook. That could be your New Year's resolution. <laughs> no guilt, no shame. Just it's just New Year's resolution for you. Your parents, your kids are watching you is all I'm saying. Verse One, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here is going to be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, this, those four guys. Now, if you were just reading Matthew or Luke, you wouldn't know it was just these four. But these four are the ones that said, hey, Jesus, let me ask you a question here. How are we going to know? Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? And in Matthew 24, again, there's like two, he says, what will be the signs of the end of the time and what will be the signs that this temple is going to be destroyed? There's two questions that they're asking, conflating together. In verse seven, Jesus says, when you hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and and famines, and these will be the beginning of uh, the birth pains. This is Jesus pulling on a metaphor that's often used in the Old Testament. Verse 9, but you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents, have them put to death, 
Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, isn't that sound exciting? Standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, never to be equaled again. In verse 20, the Lord, have he had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will shake. At that time, verse 26, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels, and he'll gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, it is right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. But be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. You do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. That's God's word, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled, cautious, confident in your word. And we look for your truth and your promises and your grace and your hope as we dig into this uh, even today. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I uh, remember 2011, no, 2001, I'm sorry. I had my little Motorola flip phone. Anybody have one of those? I, I was so excited. I loved it. Some of y'all still have them. 
my phone rang and it was my mom. She was watching the TV and the Twin Towers had fallen, the planes were in the air and she had one question which is, is this it? Is this time? Son, is this the time? And some of you are not old enough to remember that, but I'm old enough to remember a time in America where we thought, eh, we're immune to all this stuff. No, that, that happens somewhere else. And on that day, for that first time, we didn't know what was going on. And my mom wasn't the only one, and I know this because the churches in America were packed for a couple of days. And then we realized, oh, never mind, it was a false alarm. Jesus isn't coming back, so we can get back to our lives. But that was sort of this tone in America. There was this, this fear of it. And by the way, that's not a fear that, is, that we just had in 2001. It's certainly one we had in the 80s. I don't know how much uh, we grew up in the Jesus culture of the 80s and the 90s and saw those movies. I'm not talking about the left behind ones like when Kirk Cameron got left behind. I'm talking about like the Billy Graham ones they showed at the Nazarene church. You know what I'm saying? The guillotines. Yeah, yeah, that one. You know it. I got saved like a hundred times. Like I just kept getting saved. Like, <laughs> that was in all men, much love to my Nazarene brothers and sisters. But losing your salvation, like I kept having to go back down to the front. Like, ah, oh, it's exhausting. But then there was a moment where some of you came home and your parents weren't there and they were supposed to be there and you thought the rapture happened. You kids growing up today, you have no idea how easy you have it. <laughs> Me thinking, well, if my dad went, there's no way that I didn't get to go. Like, yeah. <sighs> and it's, I mean, it's funny, right? But the truth is right now on today on Twitter, this last week, World War III is trending on Twitter because the fear that we experienced in those younger days, our teenagers are experiencing right now. If you're not experiencing it, your teenagers are. I actually, uh, Kelly, I think it was Micah's uh, Instagram story, it was literally hilarious to me because she's like, message to all you feminists, if I end up getting drafted, it's your fault. She's just, <laughs> I howled. Um, and she's being funny because she's funny, but there's a state of truth in that. Like this, the, the, they're searching, that is the number one search from right now from teenagers is actually FAFSA and uh, the Selective Service because young people are wondering, am I going to get drafted into World War III? They are living in fear right now. We had this, uh, Shannon's um, first lady, uh, the pastor's wife. <laughs> we're, just, <laughs> we're just trying that out. It really doesn't work in a white church. <laughs> but... <laughs> But give us time. <laughs> uh, it was her birthday yesterday, and uh, my daughter Lauren's man. Yeah, right. She's my daughter's man friend um, joined us for <laughs> birthday uh, birthday dinner, and uh, he's a good kid, by the way. Like I really want to hate him, but he's just a good kid, so. But he's joining us for dinner, and he's actually kind of, he's, he's got a, for FAFSA, he's got to register for selective service. That's literally on the front of their minds because of what's happened in Iran. Now that's the, and, and look, we can make you know, debate as to whether it is or whether it isn't. All, but what we do know is this, that what's happening in the Middle East right now, whether it's with Soleimani or, what, there is a 
powder keg that's been sitting for decades that at some point someone's going to hit the wrong wire and there's going to be some changes going on here. And and if it's not even the war, understand that our kids, again, our teenagers, they're watching these people talk about climate change and what's happening in the earth in the 12 million miles in Australia. Any of my Australian brothers in here? How many miles is it? A lot. Uh, We're watching what's happening in the earth right now. And by the way, if you cross-reference the effects of climate change in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you're like, oh, that actually kind of fits in with what the Bible said was going to happen. So it's, we, we ought not to be alarmed. We ought not to be surprised. But the problem is, is that if you're coming at this from a purely humanist, secular idea, okay, which is what we're seeing again, even Netflix this week, the, the new show. And by the way, I canceled my Netflix and I have never felt so good. Like I was just tired of an agenda being rammed down my throat and at $17 a month, I thought, you know, I'm done with this. And I'm not saying everybody should do this, but dadgum, I felt good. Cancel. Uh, my kids are not feeling the same good that I'm feeling, but, but that's part of why I felt good about it. See, in the first service, I told a joke that I actually thought was hilarious, and it died. It was dead on arrival. I didn't actually think that was funny, and here it is. So it's too bad we don't have a third service. So I'd go back to that one. But this... The show Messiah, like this is happening in the secular, humanist, materialistic world. They're predicting the same thing that Jesus was predicting, but without the hope that Jesus gives with it. Because I agree, some of us would say, I'm not even watching the news anymore. It's too depressing. I can't even take it anymore, right? I actually get that. I understand that. And it only makes it depressing, and the more depressing it is when you don't think about the fact that Jesus had some stuff to say about this 2,000 years ago, that his hope at the end of his statement, that even if you are a secular humanist, you have to admit that your idea that we humans would evolve and that somehow we would be so much better and advanced in this day that not only would we have flying cars, we wouldn't hate each other anymore, that we would be united around the world. Mark Zuckerberg's dream of Facebook was that it would unite the world. And it's just, humans haven't evolved. It's not happening because inside of us, inside of man's heart, is a wickedness that Jesus came to save us from. And without that, we are on this ride that we can't control, we can't stop, but Jesus said he could and he would. Now that said, what I want to talk to you in the few minutes that we have here today is we're not going to go deep into Mark 13 today. We're going to do a flyover, okay? We're going to do like a couple, run a couple laps around it, and eventually I'm going to find a place to land. So if you see me not landing, someone just raise your head and say, pull down, Darren, we're going in. Um, but... What I wanted to show you with is this, is in this word, Jesus gives us these verses, this answer to when we will know and how we will know. But in the middle of that, he says, watch, be on guard, keep watch, be guarded, watch, keep. He says that over and over and over again, that in light of this, he doesn't say go bury weapons in the back property. He doesn't say to set up an arsenal, to build a commune. He just says, watch, be on the watch. If you're a commune person, congratulations. 
I, I'm just not a commune. I'm just way too much of an introvert. But Jesus doesn't say go do that. He just says be on watch. But be on watch against what? How, what does that even mean? Are we watching with him? Are we watching for him? And then when you think to Paul, so Jesus, by the way, says uh, at the end of his, he's about to be crucified, the, the end is going to come. This is what he tells his disciples right before his Passion Week. Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 3, 2, 3, 4, end of Timoth or Paul's life, he's about to be crucified, or I'm sorry, he's going to have his head cut off, but he's going to be executed. And he says to Timothy the same thing. Be on guard. Watch. Don't, you know, be careful. And the two things that are common between Jesus and Paul. Jesus, when he was watching out, and he actually says it here in verse 6. Here's what we're watching out for. Watch out that no one deceives you. That's what we're watching for. And it's what Paul would say, too, to Timothy. In light of this, be careful. Watch out that no one is going to deceive you. And how does Timothy to do that? And how is Paul to do it? Both of them are to do it by the word of God. Second Timothy 2, verses 3, 4, he's, chapters 3 and 4, he's talking about the word of God being inspired, God-breathed for our benefit, for our reproof. Jesus, when he was being tempted and deceived by Satan, what did he do? He gave him the word of God. Now that said... I'm just going to do a quick flyover of this because when we come to the word, when we come to this chapter, by the way, we should follow some genuine, general rules of how we follow scripture that keep us from being deceived. And they are to approach the word cautiously, to approach it diligently, confidently, and humbly. <laughs> Those four kind of create the frame, set the frame and set you free inside of the word of God. When we come to God's word cautiously, what does he say here? Watch out that no one deceives you, verse five of Mark 13. And instead he says in verse uh, three and four of Second Timothy, instead he's talking about in those days, here's what's gonna happen. To suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. When I come to God's word, here is the key. Am I asking God's word to submit to my desires according to their desires? Or am I asking my desires to submit to God's word? Now, when I say God's word, I'm speaking of this as an authoritative intelligible communication from God. This is not an unknowable mystery. This is an intelligible communication from God. And when I'm asking my desires to submit to his word, it's a way different way to approach the word than to ask, right, the, the word to submit to my desires. Why would I say that this is authoritative and worth submitting to? Because Jesus did. When Jesus proved who he was, when Jesus verified his identity, when Jesus on the cross, he quoted the scripture hundreds of times over and over, including the cross, his resurrection, 300 and some odd prophecies that he quoted. He used the scripture not as a literary exercise, but as a communication to verify his existence. It is intellectually untenable to say that I follow Jesus, but I don't think the scriptures are authoritative in my life. It's just not. I mean, you could be a Buddhist and say that, but not a Jesus person 
because a Jesus person following Jesus knows that Jesus said that. Now that said, you're, you come to a passage like this. This is authoritative, okay? And if I were to line up, let's say 10 theologians, okay, from N.T. Wright to Michael Easley. Can we call Mike a, a theologian? He's not here. Um, and everybody in between, and they would look at this and say, well, I think this is what the abomination that causes desolation is, or I think this is what that means. They might all disagree on that. It doesn't negate the authority of Scripture. It just negates the infallibility of the interpretation of that I'm going to give to it. But here's what we know. There are those that would say that because of that, that we can't trust the Scripture because there's so many different interpretations. One of the, the progressive talking points is, well, there's 29,000 denominations. How can we possibly know? But the difference is this. When you come to this saying that this scripture is authoritative and I'm disagreeing with you on this or I'm disagreeing on that, that uh, I'm going to give you a statement here. It's not original to me, but you can feel free and take it home and, and, and take claim for it yourself because I don't know who said it originally. But when you're going to a scripture like this and knowing that 10 theologians might disagree with this, I, I bet every, there are multiple people disagree on different options of what this might mean even in this room, okay? The main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things, okay? That's not just a bromide. That's a good grid when you're coming to the scripture as authoritative. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Now, a main thing in this passage is a literal Jesus saying, I'm going to literally return with a literal kingdom and literal elect with a literal restoring of all things. That is plain. It's plain here, because it's also plain in multiple other parts of the New Testament as well as the Old. In fact, a good way to read Scripture cautiously is to say, if it was talked about in the Old Testament, preached by Jesus, right, clarified by Jesus in the Gospels, and practiced by the disciples in the rest of the Bible, that's a main thing. Right, some of these things you see, well, that's not a main thing, so there's room for debate on that. But this is a main thing. Jesus is literally going to come back with a literal kingdom. Now, what is the abomination that causes desolation? I got no idea. I have opinions, and they're a lot of fun to talk about, but it's not a main thing. And when you look at these theologians who are arguing or debating about it, they're not debating about whether or not a literal Jesus is coming back. They're debating about whether or not he's coming after this or whether there's going to be a rapture, whether there's going to be a post-rapture, a mid-rapture. Do you guys remember those phrases, the pre-tribulation, right? Pre-trib is when Jesus comes back and then he takes us out because, you know, before the tribulation happens on this earth, okay? The the post-trib is we got to go through the whole thing and he's going to come back and get us there. The mid-tribulation is that in the middle, in the three and a half years of this seven-year tribulation, he's coming back. Everybody remember this? Here's a way to remember this. Uh, the pre-trib is I'm, I'm a wimp. I can't take it. Post-trib, I'm tough. I can take it. Mid-trib, I can only take so much. So that's how you can remember those three uh, thoughts on it. But Jesus, what we do know, when, whenever that is, what we know this is he is coming back and it could happen at any moment. But we go to it cautiously because we don't have arguments over, plain, uh, over uh, unplain things, making them main things. We're going at it diligently as well. Well, the, the promise of diligence in the scripture. I used to be a very big um, point, uh, point theologian, point and pray. God, what do you want me to hear today? What do you want me to hear today? And then it's, let's see what it was. 
Come, let us sing for joy for the Lord. Let us shout for the... So that, you know, that's point and, point and pray. Now, I never ever turn to all those who are uh, godly and Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't get those. Or if I do, I go for another one. But that's <laughs> one way to study the scripture, but that's not a diligent way. God does speak that way, and I don't mean to belittle it. But a diligence requires a, an alignment, a thoughtful approach to how this goes. I am... Um, uh, I'm not a golfer. That should come as no surprise to most of you. I, I did for about 10 years until I realized I really suck and I'm just, duh, I'm wasting my time. But what I did learn about this, you can work on your grip all day long, but if you come up to the ball and are aligned wrong to the ball, you're still going to jank it. Coming to the word of God as authoritative, that is aligning to the word of God diligently. Now I can work on my swing, right? Work on my grip, work on, but if I'm aligned wrong to God's word, I'm still gonna hit a, a shanker into the woods. So aligning, I don't know if that works in uh, shotgun shooting, Ryan or not. It certainly works with, uh, with uh, pistols uh, shooting. If I come up you know, to my target practice with my kids and I'm shooting like I'm, you know, like I'm a gangsta, like I, I'm not aligned. <laughs> And look at me, right? Am I not a, if I'm not gangsta, I don't know who is, but uh, if I'm not aligned, right, I'm not going to hit the target with it. When I come to scripture, aligning it to as authoritative and then diligently working on it. One of the reasons that I even ask you this morning to make sure your Bible is out to get, if you've ever been a soccer coach or had your kids coached in soccer or played soccer, they tell the kids, practice, practice, get touches on the ball, keep getting, the more touches, the more comfortable you are with it, the more skilled you are at it, the diligence of it. Diligence even on this passage. Diligence is, okay, there's three different times where this thing is recounted for us in scripture, right? Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, Mark 13. Read them side by side. There's a diligence. There's things that can come out of that that you can learn and you can grasp from it. What I'm talking about is called hermeneutics. That is a word that none of us use in conversation, and it's okay. It just means interpreting the Bible. That's all it means. And there are complexities to that. It includes philosophical things. It includes literary criticisms. It includes, but here's the thing. It's not so complicated right? That you and I, there are simplicities in a hermeneutic, in an interpretation that it is complex enough. Theologians can debate for thousands of years and it is simple enough that a child can understand it to just align to it and come to it with that simplicity. What is Jesus simply saying here? I'm coming back. That is a main thing. It is a plain thing. We don't, all that other stuff, we can have great conversations about it, but we don't know. But when I bring back a diligence to that, that it also leads me to a place where I can be confident with it. The confidence of God's word in Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, I love it. He talks about that I'm in chains right now. But listen to this, the word of God is not in chains. If you feel trapped right now, you feel bound up and you feel like I can't get out of wherever I'm at, know this, that God's word is not in chains. That I can approach this word, not with confidence in my ability, but with confidence in his ability. Not with confidence, right, that I'm gonna be able to infallibly interpret this. In fact, I would encourage all of you to be like what Paul, I think it was Paul, but talked about the Bereans and Acts. Right? They were more noble than the Thessalonians because they went home and said, hey, Paul said this, but let's make sure that's what it said. That is a good way to come to the scriptures confidently. Now, not with 
arrogance, not with tyranny. In fact, there's a book I, I highly recommend by a guy named Christopher Ash, uh, Hearing the Spirit Through the Word of God. Uh, it looks like it's only available on Kindle, which is very strange because it's not that new of a book. But th- this book is uh, talking about how you approach the Word. And he basically dials this into two camps. Right now, and in, in, we see this in our country right now especially, one of them is anarchy when you go to the Scriptures. The other is tyranny. Anarchy is the simple we don't know what's true, it's your truth, it's my truth, how could we possibly? And again, that's saying that there are no main things and plain things, there's only confusing things. And anarchy says that when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, anarchy would say, well, I don't know what that means, but what it means to me is this, and what it means to you is this. But what did Jesus mean by it is the question, right? And maybe I might get it dialed this way or that way, but he's saying anarchy happens when nobody knows what it means, and we all have our own ability to say this is true or that's true. And he says something this that's worth remembering. There is a difference between two people saying a text has two objectively different meanings or the text has more than one implication. Those are two different ideas. This text here, Mark 13, has different implications, but it doesn't have different meanings, right? That's a good way to know that you're approaching it diligently. This is not, I'm gonna say it one more time, this is not some mysterious piece of literature that is full of mystery that we could never understand. Are there mysteries? Yes. Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you don't have that scripture written down, memorized, and it just says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the law was written so that we could know how to live. Are there mysterious things in here? Yes. It's part of the beauty of the depth of God's word. There's mystery. But are there things that are intelligible that we might know? That's what Paul says. God's word is inspired. It's God breathed so that, and he goes two verses later, so that you and I might know and be trained how to do good works. Same thing that they were saying in Deuteronomy. We go to it. It's not an, uh, it's not an understandable, ununderstandable mystery. This is an intelligible message from God to you and to I. And when I look at this, okay, there is mystery in this passage in Mark 13, but there is an intelligible message. I'm coming back. And I remember being young. uh, That wasn't necessarily good news. I just wanted to get married first because I wanted, you know. (laughs) And you know how at some point, honest to God, this is going to happen. Somebody's going to be at the altar And the trumpet's going to sound. <laughs> oh, seriously, God, not right now. Um, I, I didn't want him to come back. But I don't know, the older I get, I got a daughter in the Navy. I've got a daughter who's married. We got kids that are grown that are beyond our control. And I'm watching the news and going, God, please come quickly. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. I don't know what happens from here on out, but come quickly, Lord, to set and to restore all things. And we're going to talk next week what that actually, what I think the Bible says that means for us. But the last thing I want to say is that we have to approach the word humbly. I've been around way too many people that came at it from the tyranny way. 
And I think if I'm being honest, there are moments in my life, even maybe even here, where I've come about it with a dogmatic tyranny on some of the things that aren't the main things. And to, to come at it humbly, what does he say in verse 32 of chapter 13? No one knows the hour. No one. I don't know. You don't know. I can be humble about that. And I love it because what does Paul say? Again, he, these are his last words to Timothy, last words that we even know that he ever wrote. And he's saying in light of Jesus appearing, in light of this, he says, chapter 2 of verse 23, and the Lord's servant, 24, I'm sorry, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. I mean... Twitter, is that gently instructing anyone? Gently instructing anyone, yelling at each other on faith? This is what he's saying. Be gentle about it, because I'm coming at this humbly. And the reason why I come at this humbly is that they, verse 26, will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. They're not your enemy. Your politician that you hate is not your enemy. They're a captive. They're a hostage. And in no war do we shoot the hostage. I come at this from humble and from kindness and from love. And I'm telling you, it doesn't come naturally to me. Waiting for my wife to say amen. but it's the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to transform us. And when I think about it, when I come at this humbly like this, there's an episode of the Radio Lab. Anybody listen to the Radio Lab? I'm finding either the Enneagram Fives or Liberals is what I'm looking at right now. Um, <laughs> Radio Lab's a WNYC New York NPR show. And, there was an episode in uh, December talking about why people attach to certain things emotionally. And the emotional attachment uh, to something is that because we all, and this one of the hosts was saying, it's because we all know that everything is impermanent. That nothing we have is permanent. It's all going to be gone. Even the child in front of you will not be there someday. And actually, I think her words were, and the most you can hope for, you're so grateful if your child has grown and has some sort of a kind contempt for you. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's what I'm experiencing right now, a, a, a kind contempt. Um, but, but, but right now in front of you, that, that's going to go on. It's going to be disappearing. And at one point, every one of us are going to be, someone in this room is going to be the last one bearing the last one that you loved. And you're going to be the last one left on this side of earth. You're like, Darren, this is a super nihilistic sermon. I'm just, it's true. That's nothing is going to last. This world isn't going to last. Whether you're a climate scientist, whether you are just a simple physicist, every religion, everybody says that there is no permanence to this. And at the core of who we are, this is sort of what the radio lab thing is, is me holding on to the concert ticket from a date that I had with Shannon in 1992 to Whiteheart. is something attached me to that because I don't know what the future holds. And what I say to you is that every one of us in here knows that, at some level of us, the people you work with, the people who are your teachers at school, the people you're passing on the interstate, the people who are your next door neighbors are living in a world 
that they know won't be there forever. And they're dealing with it in different ways. Some of them are medicating it. Some of them are doing, whether through alcohol or through sexual whatevers. Or they're, they're doing things to try to medicate this pain that it isn't going to last forever. They don't even know how to articulate it, maybe. But that's what they're saying. And so do you think that our quarreling amongst ourselves, especially as Christians, about whether or not the abomination of desolation is going to happen here or whether or not Condoleezza Rice is the Antichrist, do we think for a minute that that's helping them answer that question in their hearts? Paul says, don't get into useless quarrels. That's also in 2 Timothy 4. Don't bicker with each other about that stuff. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in our day and age right now, the main things are the plain things. Man, we have churches in town here right now that they might like market Rampoola at Southview. Okay? There's a very charismatic expression of what God is doing there. Prophecies and tongues. And, and there are those in you that I just said tongues and your butt cheeks went. <laughs> And I get it. John MacArthur don't get it. He don't want that. Okay? But Mark is looking to this Bible and saying that this is God's word and it is authoritative and I see this in this and it seems plain to me here. But it's it. So we disagree with that on him or I, you, know, you might disagree. I actually agree with him. I think God does still do miraculous things here today. Or you go to Fellowship Bible Church up in uh, Brentwood and they have a different expression of what Christ is doing there. We go to our brothers and sisters at the Church of Christ, and they might say that you have to be baptized to get saved. I might say that I don't know that you need to get baptized to get saved, but maybe you get baptized after you get saved. Jesus says get baptized. But we can sit and fight about those things, and it doesn't help at all because the people of the world are looking in on us. Now listen. There are those out there who are teaching right now that this is not God's word, that this is the best that they understood at the time. But now we know better. We, we understand more than they did, and because we're smarter now, we can rewrite some things. Now, in modern parlance, that's called progressive theology. That's, it's a big umbrella, Okay. But that's what they would say. This is all they understood. And so now we have, now the, what they would say is that now culture can tell us, uh, our intelligence can tell us that we didn't understand this. We have something better. But here's the thing. Joseph Smith in Missouri a couple hundred years ago said, yeah, this is the best they understood, but I have a new revelation now. It's called Mormonism. We're going to do this whole new thing. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to have a lot of wives. Really, I don't think it worked out so good for him, but be that as it may, that, that was what he said. That's what Mohammed said. That th this was the best they understood at the time, but now I know, and, and what Mohammed said, Jesus is awesome. In Mohammed's version, he's coming back. In fact, with Iran right now, what, he's, what they believe, what they have said at the UN, is that the 12th Imam, who fell down a well few hundred years ago, is coming back. Jesus is coming with him as a great prophet. But he said at some point, I have a better revelation. They didn't understand it, and now we do. And Islam was born. And all progressive theology is, is a modern, secular, humanistic version of Islam or of Mormonism. It's just another version of this is the best they understood, and now I know more. And what I would come to you today is say that 
you might read Mark 13 and say, I don't necessarily see that. I see this. And I might say, oh, yeah, but I, I see this. But we're at least starting, okay, from the point, the diligence, aligning the ball, that this is God's authoritative word. And we're going to have a conversation based around that. And for the rest of us, as we're having those conversations in this room, let's not throw ourselves out there as theological porcupines. You make a lot of really great points and you hurt everybody you come in contact with. Paul didn't ever say, go at them and stab them. He said, go at them kindly. They're not your enemies. Pray for them. And as we go into Mark 13 next week, I wanted you to know we're going to align ourselves with this scripture. I have some opinions about how I think this is going to go. And I ultimately want you to know that I think that there is hope that we ought not to be alarmed when we see these things, that whether Jesus comes back in our lifetime and or some another lifetime, that these ways of approaching the word, that these ways of approaching life with diligence, with humility, with caution, and with confidence, that works in any generation. And I've been in this word for most of my life. And God has spoken to me in ways. I'm surrounded by people in trenches all over the world who are feeding the poor, who are taking care of orphans and widows. Grady and Becky Pickett right now sitting in northern Iraq, serving Kurdish people, coming to Christ, shipping books to a foreign country. We're recording. so Shipping books to a foreign country. 5,000 books are going over the mountains to a foreign country, Right? And why do they do that? Because they're just the word of God is the word of God. They don't even debate it over there. That said, I've gone long enough for you for today on a day like this, but I stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. And I want to encourage you, if you're a teenager in Christ, the world, I, I can't make any guarantees on what will happen tomorrow or how the world goes. I can't make any guarantees on that, I can make one guarantee, and that is that Jesus is sovereign over history. <coughs> sovereign over history. And these people that you're reading today, Mark, Matthew, Luke, all these disciples that were crucified, cut, and whatever, they, they had some pretty bad endings. And 2,000 years later in heaven, I promise you not a one of them was like, well, that sucked. <laughs> no, they're looking back going, oh man, righteous and true are your judgments, oh God righteous and true. And you can have that same confidence that a literal Jesus is coming to set up a literal kingdom, that everything sad that you know will become untrue. The winter of this earth will be turned to spring because Jesus is coming. And even so, come quickly, Lord. We pray today, Father, for your grace to become real and alive inside of us. Lord, Help us, forgive, Lord, forgive me for those moments where I've been arrogant and cocky and, and belligerent, trying to make a point, trying to be right. And at the same time, Lord, give us the courage to be bold, to, to say things that are true. And give us patience and room for each of us to look at the word of God as an authoritative, intelligible communication. And maybe I don't see it the same way, but we're still seeing it from aligning at the same ball. Lord, most of all today, give peace to everyone in this room. We're going to go out. The news is going to blow up. We're going to see all this stuff. They want us afraid because they want us to keep clicking on their stuff, but they're not our source of truth. You are. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you, you're dismissed.